Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts, Emma and Jack. Welcome back, one and all, to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and today we are joined by a very, very special guest host. Um, So a little bit of housekeeping first before we get into things. First of all, welcome back. I know we kind of took a little bit of a break. Uh, We definitely had some things going on that we just needed a little bit more time with. So thank you all so much for being so patient. And as promised, we are here the end of summer closing out summer with a very strange movie. Um, So we have a little bit of news. Jack will actually not be joining us on this episode or any of the episodes in the next month or so. He will be hopefully coming back um, after kind of figuring out his schedule. But until then, we are trying a very fun, new, exciting little series on the Old Soul Movie Podcast, which will entail me educating our little sister, Isabella, and her Gen Z friends all about classic movies. (laughs) And today we have our very first guest host in this lineup, Brooke, a Gen Zer, a young mind. She is the perfect person to kick us off in the series because she is a devoted Longtime listener to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. She's listened to every episode. She is so great. And I cannot wait to cover this one with you. Brooke, how are you doing? I am great. I am very honored to be here as your first Gen Z guest. Although (laughs) I feel a little embarrassed to be Gen Z. I definitely like to represent more as a millennial, having grown up with all of you guys, like you, (laughs) Jack. But I'm here. I'm here to represent. I'll throw in a little bit of modern slang for you. <laughs> you know what? It was so funny, you guys. Right before we got on, Brooke said something that pretty much felt like it was an entirely different language to me. She made all these <laughs> references that I had no idea. So this will be fun, I think, because I'm going to be learning. She might be doing a little bit of learning. I am learning every single episode I listen to. <laughs> the old souls will grow into young souls, the young souls into old souls. It's, it's going to be a great experience. I'm pretty excited. So, well, let me first ask you, what is your kind of experience with classic movies? I guess I've never really talked to you about your mm-hmm. history of classic films. Oh, Brooke is also our resident Mary Poppins fan. I am. She is definitely an expert in some older films, but um, definitely. overall, what would you say your relationship is with classic films? Overall, I've seen all of the generic classics like the Christmas movies, the ones you grow up with, but never really ventured into older movies. I would say maybe 1960s, like Mary Poppins is the oldest I've ever gone, but definitely interested to watch more. And every time I've listened to an episode that I'm like, oh my God, that sounds really interesting. Let me watch that movie now. So you guys have definitely made me into more of an old soul, I guess you could say. That's awesome. Okay. Out of curiosity, because I don't even think I've asked you this, but 
Mm-hmm. The movies we've covered, I know you've listened to all the episodes and I know mm-hmm. you, you know, watched them afterwards. Is there a movie that you were introduced to that hit different with you, as the kids say, <laughs> that you really liked and were like, wow, I'm so glad I was introduced to this? I would say so. Psycho is definitely the movie that kind of kicked it all off for me just because. I had seen Bates Motel before, and that's Ah, obviously such a modern TV show that I had no idea it was based off of anything. So then I watched the movie, I rewatched the show, and I was just connecting all these things that I didn't realize. That is so cool. You know, I've never seen that show. Someone uh, recommended it to me, though. So maybe I'll check that out. and We can compare notes. You would love it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I'm so glad you, you know, explored that movie because it's one of my personal favorites. Oh, it's great. I've I've watched plenty of movies. I know I sent you and Jack a picture of me watching Giant (laughs) and I was like all cozy in bed and I was like, all right, watching your guys' favorite. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Love it. Love it. Well, awesome. So I'm excited to watch this one with you because I'm I'm willing to venture a guess that maybe you haven't seen this one before. So (laughs) this will be a fun new one to explore together. And today, Brooke and I are covering a movie that Variety Magazine called possibly the most bizarre film ever made by any major American company. A movie that John McCartan of The New Yorker called a preposterous, monotonous potpourri of incest, homosexuality, psychiatry, and so help me, cannibalism. That's right. We will be talking about Suddenly Last Summer from 1959. Wow. Based off that description, what a movie. Um, We actually had a poll on our Instagram to determine what movie to cover this Labor Day weekend between this one and Good Neighbor Sam. This one won out. You guys wanted to hear more about Suddenly Last Summer. Last summer, we covered A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. And of course, here we are, a reunion of those two fabulous actors this Labor Day weekend, kind of closing out the summer in a very, very strange way. (laughs) So it was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, and the screenplay was by Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams. It was based off of Tennessee Williams's play of the same name suddenly last summer. It was produced by Sam Spiegel. It stars Catherine Hepburn as Violet Venable, Elizabeth Taylor is Catherine Holly and Montgomery Clift is Dr. John Kirkowitz. And I just want to put this trigger warning out there that we may be talking about sexual assault and mental health topics. So if any of those might be sensitive content, listener discretion is advised. And like I mentioned earlier, this uh, is quite a crazy movie. So there's a bunch of uh, interesting topics that might come up. So here we are suddenly last summer. This was originally a one act play. Like I mentioned, written by Tennessee Williams. We've covered a couple of his other works like streetcar named desire cat on a hot tin roof this year. What did you think of those movies, Brooke? I will say, I think I preferred cat on a hot tin roof just because it was like, I think it's just more my genre. Yeah. But that's just my opinion on that. (laughs) Interesting. So you kind of get Tennessee Williams vibe. This comes from Mm -hmm. the same mind. Mm -hmm. 
And I actually read this play this summer. I had never read it before. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting for me because I I hadn't seen the movie either. And I just thought, how is this going? How is this made into a movie? Because it's kind of an unusual play. It's not bad. It's just kind of different. It's like a, it, it goes in a lot of different directions very quickly. I'm sure. Yeah. It's a little more experimental. Yeah. So that's, I, I was curious how it was going to be drawn out. And that is kind of one of the criticisms of this movie, which we'll get to later, but as referenced earlier, Tennessee Williams, as we know from the other movies we've covered explores LGBTQ characters, shadow selves, family tension, sexuality, and uh, kind of earlier forms of psychiatric care. And this movie encompasses all of that for sure. And like we mentioned in our Streetcar Named Desire episode, Tennessee Williams was very much critical and affected by his sister Rose's lobotomy. Uh, Rose was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1943, and then she was lobotomized, which left her incapacitated. And she actually had to be institutionalized for the rest of her life with some of the profits from her brother's work uh, going towards her care. He helped take care of her for the rest of her life. And a really similar situation actually happened to Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of JFK. So this was definitely a hot button issue of the past. So some of you might be wondering, what is a lobotomy? What was your, what was your knowledge of lobotomies before you dove into this movie or did research? I will say the first thing I knew about it was the fact that they basically drill into your head just because of, I don't know, middle school. We probably watched (laughs) something that had like a lobotomy in it. But upon further research, it was like, like you said, that hot issue of it's just like their go-to for anyone suffering from schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. That was just the go-to at that time. Yeah. I mean, so the definition really of a lobotomy is a surgery in which the nerve pathways and the parts of the lobe are cut off from other parts of the brain. So that's a pretty serious surgery. Uh, It was a technique that was first explored in the 1880s. And the surgery was developed here and there throughout the following decades. And then between 1935 through 1937, it kind of became an established procedure And then it became more widely implemented as it was seen as calming down patients, like you said, with schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. Honestly, there was a little bit of apprehension at first in the U.S. This was first developed in Europe, but then it became a pretty widely requested procedure throughout the 1940s. And like you said, I mean, like your your preconceived notions are right. It is literally drilling a hole into someone's head and then taking an ice pick and Mm -hmm. cutting off those nerves that we described. So that's pretty graphic. Um, (laughs) I I will say upon my further research, I did find out in 1946, Harry Truman signed the National Mental Health Act, which called for conducting of research into the mind, brain and behavior. So thank God for that. (laughs) Ah, Yes, I love that. 
that. Thank you for sharing that fact. I love this yeah. like, cup of knowledge that we're pouring. Oh, I am trying to fill in <laughs> what we're missing with Jack today. Yes. No, that's, um, that's a very good point. And honestly, it really started to taper off then going forward in the fifties, mm-hmm. once psychiatric medications were developed and implemented mm-hmm. into mental health treatment. So, you know, what's really interesting is that yes, it would sometimes subdue patients, but the controversy was really with the side effects that would come along with it. There were physical Mm -hmm. side effects, but a lot of the commonly reported side effects were patients basically losing their personality, becoming just apathetic, zombie-like. Like a vegetable. Yes, That's the terminology that we would use nowadays. Yeah. Exactly. Like really a lack of ability to do anything in everyday life or have an emotional response or a decreased emotional response. Mm -hmm. So this like, yeah, you're, you know, quote unquote, like the issue that's presenting is I guess maybe (laughs) alleviated, but you're introducing then a lot more, like you're basically just destroying the matter instead of fixing it, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's really tricky about it. And you can absolutely see where Tennessee Williams was so, you know, critical. And actually, Mm -hmm. of course, we're all familiar with the prevalent example of the lobotomy that's featured in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest starring Jack Nicholson in which- Great movie. (laughs) Yes. Yes. In which his character is punished and his punishment's a lobotomy. So he's basically just- you know, vegetable, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a concern that at that time, hospitals were using it as a way of managing people in their care who were more challenging or because of overcrowding in institutions. And also Mm -hmm. the media really did hype this up as this is like the wonder procedure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is really scary. And this is actually kind of the scariest example I found. You probably found this one too. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts, but the 12 year old Howard Dully, who was forced into a lobotomy because his stepmother thought he was quote defiant daydreams and objected to go to bed, which is just normal preteen behavior. Yeah. Um, and she, yeah, he had a lobotomy done and that's a real life example of someone at having 12 at 12. Oh my goodness. Isn't that crazy? I mean, how, how the times have changed, but that's an exam, a real life example of someone having authority or guardianship and then using it for kind of a controlling purpose, which is exactly what we see in this movie between Mm -hmm. Violet and Catherine. So that's just crazy. Right. My experience reading the play It just kind of kept you on a hook until the end. And I think there was a really similar sensation in this movie where I was on a hook until the very end. I would agree. I I will say I do like, yes, it is a longer film, but at the same time, you definitely get the full story from every aspect when watching it. So by the end, you're not confused or lost on anything. That is good to know from, I mean, cause I feel at this point, I feel kind of familiar with it cause mm-hmm. I've, I've read the play and then I've, you know, I've seen, I, I, I've actually, I watched it earlier this summer too. So I've, I've seen it before and then I'm watching it now here. So I feel a little bit more familiar with it, but hearing kind of a fresher watched perspective, having not one clue yes. about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is good to know. Um, 
but yeah, production wise, I think it is interesting that Elizabeth Taylor chose this part for sure. But I wonder if she really liked Tennessee Williams's work, having done Kid mm-hmm. on a Hot Tin Roof, which he mm-hmm. wrote, of course. And like I mentioned, Elizabeth Taylor, Montgomery Clift, they were in A Place in the Sun together. They were in another movie called Rain Tree County together. Yet again, this is another one of their projects. However, unlike A Place in the Sun, this film took place after Montgomery Cliff's devastating car accident in 1956, which if you recall from our Montgomery Cliff spotlight episode, um, really did drastically change his life. And Elizabeth Taylor, who was one of his best friends, was actually one of the ones that found him right after the crash happened and helped him get medical attention. So at this point in time, after the car accident, Montgomery Clift was heavily abusing alcohol and on prescription drugs, and no one wanted to work with him because his health and his mental health were in such a decline. And also there wasn't a doctor willing to declare him insurable. So that presented a huge challenge with him finding work. Elizabeth Taylor, however, being the amazing friend and coworker that she is, refused to do the movie without him. And at this point, her box office draw was really big. Keep in mind, this is now like nine years later. No, eight years later. Yeah, eight years later after A Place in the Sun came out. And in that span of the 50s, she really, really developed her career into a leading lady. Uh, So. The box office wasn't going to do it without her. She wasn't going to do it without Monty. Here we are. Which, so I think just to me, it's so sweet that she paid it forward and brought him on. Because, I mean, when I think back, and if you think back to our uh, Place in the Sun episode, she was so young. And she's actually so much younger than Montgomery Clift. And when they started in that movie together, she was just really at the beginning of her transition from the child acting roles to the adult roles. And so I think this is really sweet. It it, it gives me like a star is born vibes, her Mm -hmm. wanting to help out her leading man. Right. Who's going through a struggle. So as as she rises to the top. So I think that's really cool. It was cool to see them work again, but unfortunately behind the scenes, uh, Montgomery Clift did have a really, really hard time keeping up with the demands of the film And he was not treated very well on set by the producer, Sam Spiegel, or the director, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. This is pretty widely documented. I don't have examples, Mm -hmm. but you can just see, like, you know, I I can just see someone really maybe being super short with someone, uh, putting up attitude. I know that they were asking to get him fired all the time. And then legend Catherine Hepburn was so disgusted at their treatment. I was just going to (laughs) say... Do you want to share it? What did she do after filming wrapped? (laughs) After filming, she walked right up to them and she told them off. And it's not specified if she did this to both of them or one or the other, but she spat at them for treating him so horribly because she is a boss lady. (laughs) She really did take a stance there. And keep in mind, she actually was going through some personal difficulties as well. Uh, Oh, yeah. Her her partner, Spencer Tracy, uh, that was really a heightened period of poor health for him. And I, I can just see her being like, none of this. None of this BS. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 
So some drama behind the scenes is actually kind of amazing to me that this, I don't know, kind of pulled through. And Mercedes McCambridge also in this very different role than Luz in Giant. So I see terrific range there. Isn't that awesome? So overall, what would you say your thoughts are on the casting, the acting performances, just kind of what every actor brought to this? I will say I thought the casting was great, not having too much personal education on all the other actors and (laughs) actresses who could have filled the spots. But in my opinion, it delivered the story very well. And I will say it's very ironic that um, Elizabeth Taylor had top billing and you don't even see her for the first 30, 40 minutes. But that's what made it almost so great is because you're anticipating when are we going to see her it, it that is a really good point I feel like you're really kind of solidifying someone's legendary status with that in a way oh yeah teasing her almost a little yeah I'm, I'm blanking to come up with either a modern example or a classic movie example but I, I feel like that's seen a lot sometimes where it's like mm-hmm. ta-da here they are so right. th- that's cool Um, Do you know who Peter O'Toole is? I do not. Well, (laughs) he was in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. And he auditioned for a role in this film. It did not go very well. Uh, But he lucked out because the same people, I think, casting for this movie casted for Lawrence of Arabia, which is a very famous role that he had. So mm-hmm. it's just like a little bit of a story of maybe it doesn't work out the first time, but it'll work yeah. out. Yeah, Good for him. Good for him. And then do you recall Vivian Lee from a streetcar named oh, desire? Yes, I do. She was actually offered the role of Violet Venable, the mom. And I think she would have killed it, but she did turn it down. So what could have been Catherine Hepburn did amazing though. I have no complaints. It's just one of those <laughs> things where, that would have been what cool could have too. been. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and you know what's really interesting to me is Gora Vidal was the screenwriter on this. And if for those of you unfamiliar with him, he is a bisexual American novelist and eventual politician and actor. He also worked on the screenplay Ben Hur. And that brings us to three men who are seen as members of the LGBTQ community working on this film. And let's revisit. Head on a hot tin roof, just once more, humor me. Uh, We covered it earlier this summer. Now, that came out in 1958, a year before this came out. Mm -hmm. And if we can recall, that movie's LGBTQ themes were heavily edited, right? Right. Now, in this one, would you say it's a little less covert? Like they're a little bit maybe more open? I would say so. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And part of why that may be is because that when this film was worked on, it was kind of done in, I don't want to say cahoots, but in tandem with the National Legion of Decency, that old, that old term and the production code administration, which we've talked about endlessly. (laughs) And because of that, And because Sebastian is such an awful type of character, this film then would portray that living in such an LGBTQ fashion was 
horrible and immoral Mm -hmm. and perverse. Unacceptable. Keep it hidden behind closed doors. Exactly. And that it leads to this guy's demise. So I Mm -hmm. think that is interesting that when it works in the opposite, that's when they're willing to let things let it slide. Yes. Mm -hmm. So something to keep in mind. And you know what? If we look back at this time period, if you recall from our LGBTQ episode, male LGBTQ characters, particularly of this time period, started being shown in kind of an evil or a negative way, like the boys of Alfred Hitchcock's Rope or Jill Cairo in The Maltese Falcon. And then we fall into the pattern of the LGBTQ characters finding their demise, meeting destruction, like in The Lost Weekend or Rebel Without a Cause or, uh, of course, you know, Skipper, Brick, mm-hmm. Kid on a Hot Tin Roof. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, it kind of did follow suit into that, actually both categories, the evil guy <laughs> and the self-destruction. And I right. don't really think that we see... Yeah, that that change in the LGBTQ portrayal definitively until after Stonewall. But I mean, like this was a pretty successful movie. Overall, it grossed nine million at the box office worldwide. Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor were nominated for Best Actress. Both of them were not even Best Supporting, uh, both Best Actress, which is one of five films to hold that distinction. The others being All About Eve, The Turning Point, Terms of Endearment and Thelma and Louise. That's my favorite. Yes. I, oh, I love Thelma and Louise. I love that one. Maybe that's one we should cover too. Oh my God. That'd be amazing. <laughs> that's a great film. I don't even know how many times I've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Young Brad Pitt too. Great one. Oh. Yes. So this was, yeah, it's kind of a wonder how it all came together given the production code, the push and pull between people behind the scenes, the actual contents of the play itself and the movie. It's really amazing. So I'm kind of excited to dive into it. Now, before you were assigned to watch this, what were kind Mm -hmm. of your thoughts going into it? Did you read anything beforehand? Did you prep it all? Did you just go into a blind? Not one thing. I voted on the Instagram (laughs) stories based on the pictures. Yes, it's beautifully shot. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And then you called me up and I was like, all right, let me get to my homework. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Um, Would you say, is there any advice you'd give to someone watching this for the first time? All I would recommend is make sure you're not distracted because I did have to rewind maybe once or twice throughout the movie just because I thought I missed something, especially sometimes when Elizabeth Taylor starts talking really fast. Mm. I'm like, hold the phone. I need to listen (laughs) to that again. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I think my big feedback kind of in conjunction with what you just said is that this was based off of a play and plays are written to be very dialogue heavy because of course that's really the biggest tool you're working with when you're delivering uh, on one stage, one scene. So this is a very, very, very dialogue heavy play. Uh, There's definitely extremely long monologues, I would say, here and there. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I I think that's a really good um, suggestion to rewind things, maybe even pause things. I think it's actually kind of worth it to get to the end. You know what's Mm -hmm. funny? The first time I 
watched this, I wasn't crazy about it. The second really? time I watched it, I liked it better. Interesting. I really liked it. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah, well, yeah no. So I actually did like it in the end. Um, and I think my experience was reading the play. It was so contained and it was so mm-hmm. much more abbreviated than mm-hmm. this that um, I liked that. And then when there was like, I don't want to say fluff, but things added, I kind of that was distracting in a sense of like, I don't know if that was necessary or I didn't necessarily see what it added right away. Mm-hmm. But on my second watch, uh, you know, a couple months later, I think structurally it is pretty sound. I think they did a pretty good job adapting it. It's strange, but I don't know, a fun watch for sure. <laughs> Definitely keeps you on your toes. Like you said, on a hook. Yes. So, I mean, without further ado, should we get into the rewatch? Let's get into the rewatch. Here we go in five, four, three, two, one, action. Now, we are in 1937 New Orleans. Catherine Holly is a young woman institutionalized for a severe emotional disturbance that occurred with her cousin, Sebastian Venable died under strange circumstances while they were on summer holiday in Europe. The late Sebastian's wealthy mother, Violet Venable, makes every effort to deny and suppress the potentially sordid truth about her son and his demise. Toward the end, she attempts to bribe the state hospital's administrator, Lawrence J. Hochstetter, by offering to finance a new wing for the underfunded facility if he promises that his brilliant young surgeon, Dr. John Kirkowitz, will treat her niece. Mrs. Venable meets Dr. Kirkwitz and their conversation deals rather with Sebastian. Mrs. Venable describes him as a sensitive poet and recounts her travels with him. Catherine has been confined to a private woman's mental institution since returning from Europe several months earlier after suffering a severe shock from the events surrounding Sebastian's death. Wow, what a start. Very fascinating beginning. So, like, let's go to the opening title sequence. What are your thoughts? Is it is it kind of starting off? I was quite confused in the beginning. The first <laughs> note I wrote was reminds me of a jail. <laughs> ah, well, that is, I think, accomplishing what it's setting out to do because I think right. it is very much trying to show mental hospitals and institutions as being mm-hmm. prison-like. And you know what's, I mean, not to get too far into like today's society or like too much cultural references outside of this, but it is interesting now how we see prisons and being treated as like the largest mental health facilities. And oh yeah, so just, you know, interesting how things change and don't change over the years right? and, and transfer. Yeah, I was very curious as to how they accomplished that being like a 1950s film set in the 30s. And I was like, that's kind of like today, but. Yes. And, you know, I that is very interesting that you bring up that it was taking place in 1937. I will say, I think it is a little strange to me that they chose to keep it that year. Um, A, for the reasons we kind of discussed earlier, I feel like lobotomies were really kind of established Mm reputation-wise in the 40s. Um, 
but having said that there was apprehension in the thirties and I could see that being like the fork in the road of people's mindsets going one of two ways. Like this is a mm-hmm. miracle solves all my problem. I don't have to deal with these problems anymore. So I'm just going to have mm-hmm. this person get lobotomized or you see it as like, this is dangerous. This is inhumane and unethical. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I can see that. Yeah. And having it be more prevalent in the forties, but set in 37, a few years before, I think right. it makes more sense as to in really like the first scene, they do mention that it's a little more experimental. This is the doctor that does it here. Um, they are dealing with more than 1200 mental cases and they're, we'll get that into the story. <laughs> that <one. laughs> No, that you bring up really great points. Like uh, that's a really good way of establishing character motivation. Mm -hmm. Uh, This guy needs to get that money. So the other thing I think was kind of weird with the setting was, well, I thought lots of things were 1930s reminiscent. Like there were costumes and hairstyles that reminded Mm -hmm. me of the 30s. There were other costumes that felt very, and hair and makeup that felt very 50s to me. So, All of Elizabeth Taylor's were 50s. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. So that was um, unusual and I would say in continuity there. Um, right. But. Oh, don't even, don't even start <laughs> me on continuity. That's the, I am very detail oriented. Yes. And that's the one thing that I noticed quite a few times in this movie. So definitely for anyone watching, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it, that bothered me a tad. But I will say, I guess like with artistic licensing, you could kind of say that gives this a little bit of a timeless feel that mm-hmm. it kind of did transfer throughout their like you're like okay you're you're 1959 watching this in the theater like it can make mm-hmm. you like I guess relate a little bit to what's going yeah. on so I, I don't know it, it, interesting choice um it, it bothers me from a detail perspective but from an artistic perspective I feel like it, it flows kind of <laughs> so right. yeah, strange strange dichotomy there but <laughs> moving forward um what do you think of Dr. Kirkwood when we meet him and his situation he, to me, seems a little apprehensive on how the, what's his name? The, oh, the director. title? Yeah, the director. Yes. He does seem a little apprehensive on how hard the director is pushing these procedures and showing all these students, this is what you're going to be doing. Um, but I think in the beginning, I can tell that he is going to be the little fireball that like pushes back on everything. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's just like, I don't want to say strange, but you can see such a difference in Montgomery Cliff's presence to me from Mm -hmm. this. And when you look at something like red river or uh, a place in the sun Uh, I don't know if you've seen the misfits, which is a later one, but you can really see a split and he's not like a worse actor at all, but Mm -hmm. I I think you can see just like, I don't know, a sense of life hardness. Yeah. That's popping through for him. But then we meet Violet Venable played by the great Catherine Hepburn. What are your thoughts of her? 
are you getting Mrs. Bates vibes? I am. (laughs) Speaking of psycho. I will say I am personally an Audrey Hepburn fan with no relation to Catherine, but my dad is the biggest fan. He can never remember Audrey's name. He just remembers her. (laughs) And her entrance in this film is just iconic. She's bomb. Yeah, (laughs) she really is iconic. That would be a really great way of describing her in a nutshell. She's just iconic. Oh, yeah. Legend. So... All right. There, there are some, I don't want to say red flags, but interesting lines here, especially when Dr. Oh, yeah. Kirkowitz goes, oh, I thought you were a widow. And her first response is like, oh, I am. But then her next add-on to that is, oh, I'm wearing white because my son's favorite color is white. And she just, she doesn't mention really her husband at all. She just, in reference to her widowhood, she just starts talking about her son. and. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're already starting to get the creepy vibes, maybe a little bit of their first incestual stuff teetering there. Uh, Big Uh, time. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the relationship then between Violet and her son, Sebastian? Oh, keep in mind, everyone, we don't see Sebastian, like Sebastian's dead. We don't see Mm -hmm. him throughout this at all. So his character's off screen and not present yet very present throughout this Mm -hmm. and I do like that how you can almost picture Sebastian however you want to picture him as Mm -hmm. based off of what all these people are saying about him yes but I will say I definitely got that vibe of a little (laughs) bit of incestual relationships and the way that she began to speak about him how it's Violet and Sebastian they're this they're this big duo that everyone knows about. It wasn't Sebastian and his mom or any of those references. It was just, they were this iconic duo. She thinks of herself with her son as iconic too. Yes. uh, That was, I guess, yeah, part of her half, her pairing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's really, I mean, it kind of is like that Norma Bates, Norman Bates, Mm -hmm. psycho vibes. And this came out before that. So I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock saw this and took any inspo, but I wouldn't be shocked if that is a good remark right there. He did. So, yeah, (laughs) interesting things there. Uh, I love the greenery, like the jungle scene that it's very much how it's described in the play. And I feel Mm -hmm. like it creates the setting of like a primitiveness. Mm-hmm. which is really cool. At what point are you starting to think that I almost called her Catherine, but Catherine Hepburn <laughs> plays Violet. So I'm trying to right. keep <laughs> uh, At what point do you think Violet is got some ulterior motives here with this surgery thing? Do you think she really wants to help her niece just achieve peace? Or do you think she wants her to be quiet about something at this point? I definitely think that she wants her niece to be quiet about something just because you can tell in the scores too. Like when he's just, when the doctor's just looking through the garden, there's this very suspenseful music going on. And I myself was questioning, he's just looking at a garden. What's so suspenseful (laughs) about this? Yes, a good good old music cue. (laughs) 
there's something suspicious, you know, something's wrong because even when they're inside before they even go out to the garden, her assistant stops her and asks if she should go outside because of some pre-existing condition and we're mm. not sure what's wrong with her. And so I think I could already tell that she wasn't all there. So yes. I was already kind of catching on to her scheme. Good pickup. I think you are absolutely right. That is a very good little hint. There's also just like some flat out weird talk. You know, we've got mm. them talking about the baby sea turtles being eaten. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I literally I wrote in all caps weird. How did we get to birds, God and sea turtles? And this exactly. conversation, this conversation takes place, mind you, in front of a skeleton with wings. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, it, it's so gothic. It's just like this dark, spooky. It's a, you know what, actually, this is a great transition movie from summer to spooky season, I think. Oh, a hundred percent. Plus it's all in black and white. So you're yes. not enjoying the colorful garden. It's just like dead. Yes. Yeah. So it, you've got this juxtaposition of sunlight and beaches and heat and oceans and mm -hmm. death and gore and incest mm -hmm. and cannibalism, <laughs> lobotomies. <laughs> so it's, it, you get both. And yeah, it's, a, to me, this is a really, I don't want to say fun way to cap off summer, but I think it's kind of seasonally appropriate. It gets us excited for fall. Right. <laughs> But back to the baby sea turtles being eaten, it's mm -hmm. it's a little bit of foreshadowing because she's talking about these babies being devoured and them going for these vulnerable parts. And I'm just I'm just wondering if maybe there will be another baby of someone who gets devoured by mm -hmm. something later. I will say at the end of her conversation with the doctor in the garden, right before mm -hmm. he's about to leave, she does mention how, like, I don't know exactly how she phrased it. I should have written the entire line down, but she says how herbivores don't make it in this world and yes. the carnivores always end up on top. And that's a little bit of foreshadowing, might I say. <laughs> <laughs> Right you are, Brooke. <laughs> That's another great example of foreshadowing. And I actually wrote that exact word in my notes. But, you know, you know what's odd is that I'm not a paleontologist, but I don't think that's entirely accurate, you know? Mm -mm. Doesn't so, seem right. <laughs> but from a storytelling perspective, it'll definitely be a hypothesis that is put to the test. Oh, yes. And I didn't realize it until the very end, which ah, you already yes. you already gave the little spiel, the trigger warning. So I don't think I'm giving <laughs> anything away there, but I definitely <laughs> did not pick that up until the end. Oh, so that's a line that stuck with you and hit you it stuck with me and I did not know why very cool no that is good to know um but like that is just a mark of very good writing on both Tennessee Williams and uh Gore Vidal's part and mm -hmm. good, act good acting on Catherine Hepburn's part and making for it sure memorable creepy enough <laughs> right well on that note then we kind of go into meeting Catherine so and I love how even when Elizabeth Taylor is supposed to be a mess, she's still freaking beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on Catherine when we meet her and that introduction? I will say I was excited to finally see her. 
Yes. But you could tell almost immediately that, I mean, whether you have experience of knowing someone with mental health issues or just Mm. a happy person, she's not actually ill. And I could kind of tell that immediately. She's just distressed over people telling her she's ill. Wow. She's just trying to get someone to listen to her and understand. But I think her aunt keeps intruding in that. I think that is a very profound and insightful commentary on the situation because I think that you're absolutely correct. And I think it's something that happens in real life. Mm -hmm. So I hope that that translated for others as well as it did for you, because Catherine is in this little bit of a stuck piece Mm -hmm. and we get to hear more of her backstory and all that. But I will say this little note. One thing that I'm trying to be a little bit better about when I watch movies is looking at the props more and trying to understand the symbolism even more. Um, I feel like mm. it's something that I used to pay more attention to and I've just kind of stopped. But I, I think back because that cigarette scene was so prominent in the play and it was kept here. So I'm like, okay, there's a symbolic significance there. And to me, I'm almost interpreting it as her holding loaded information. And when she gives it to people, they can't handle it. So Oh. I, 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 that that is one view I have of it. I don't know if that's you know correct by any means, but uh, the, the moral of the story is that props like the cigarette can be greater symbols for something else. For sure. Yeah, and I mean we we hear her her background, and she recounts her rape, and then she talks about how she and Sebastian became buddies. And then we get that she's a little cloudy after his death. So for Mm -hmm. me, and we mentioned this in Ked on a Hot Tin Roof, but this feels like once again, a JJ Abrams mystery box. And Mm. I feel like Tennessee Williams is really good at. And I remember reading the play and then watching this, of course. And I just wanted to know how he died. So bad. And in that way, you have a motivation as an audience member too. And it's similarly aligned to the character's goals. So what were your, were you also dying to know how he died? I will say I was super curious, but at the same time, I enjoyed how they elongated it. Okay. Because I I like that feeling of suspense. Yes. I also liked how elongated it was too. So like like dying Mm -hmm. to know in a a good way where it kept the tension going. Uh Um, So I also enjoyed that. And that's that's what really kept me on a hook. And I think what's tricky about the movie is in the play, it was kind of perfectly timed. Mm -hmm. I think with... um, just the rhythm. And then when they finally got to the death, it was like, yes, we're here. And in the movie, I kind of felt like maybe some of those extra parts um, frustrated me a little bit more than it did the play. Mm -hmm. But that being said, in the end, I was still pretty hooked. (laughs) (laughs) I will say too, I made note how Catherine described that her life began and ended that night of the Mardi Gras ball. Yes. And it almost makes you more intrigued because 
you want to know what happened to Sebastian, but at the same time, you're also wondering what happened to Catherine that night. Yes, so it's that almost is a good like point. you're following these two stories at once to get to the same end goal. Right. There's a lot of little uncovering to do and it kind of helps give a window into her characterization as well when it comes mm-hmm. to the truth and withholding the truth or giving the truth and what that means and mm-hmm. and if people accept it or not too on that because it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like she was accepted and and I think that that line is pretty accurate it really does feel like that was a clear schism and split in her right. life trajectory that mm-hmm. changed it forever so you're absolutely right and okay was that a friendly kiss in between the doctor and the patient's <laughs> I will say they are both very attractive and I would ship them any day. Adding my little Gen Z terminology of shipping. Now I'm familiar with the term shipping. Let's, let's say we're talking to someone who, who's not heard that term before. (laughs) What is shipping? It's almost as if you see these two people and you want them together (laughs) so badly that Somewhere back in the 2000s, they just they they decided to call it that you ship these two people together, like a relationship. Yes, <laughs> perfect. Yes, uh, you know it's it's so weird because in the play they were not a couple, and this is definitely really romanticized. <laughs> And, oh my add, goodness. and added element. So I don't know how I feel. Like, I think to me, I almost like it in the sense of let's just throw something else weird mm-hmm. into this story. Well, it's interesting because it's almost as if you want the two characters to be together because he's the one that will help her in the end. But at the same time, if you think about it nowadays, you're not going to get into a relationship with your therapist. That's probably no, not the best idea. <laughs> it's actually not legal. Uh, yeah. So, it's, so this crosses a lot of legal, ethical, moral boundaries here. But yeah. <laughs> from a, from a, I guess, just an entertainment value perspective. Um, That's it. It's, it's, it's kind of a fun addition, maybe. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, like I said, it's just so freaking weird. But <laughs> I guess I can see where someone would be watching it. And he's a handsome guy. She's a beautiful woman. They're a beautiful mm-hmm. couple. It makes sense. They've been paired together multiple times. We love to see it. So yeah, I, I can see why it was added for sure. Um, but shall we move on to the next portion slash second half of this crazy film. Of course. Here we are beginning to doubt that Catherine is as deranged as Mrs. Venable pretends. Dr. Kirkwoods moves Catherine into the state hospital for observation. Catherine's mother and brother pay her visit there and reveal that Mrs. Venable will pay them a large sum of money if they sign the papers to commit Catherine to the institution and allow a lobotomy to be performed. Yikes. The doctor persuades Mrs. Venable to meet Catherine. In the ensuing confrontation, Catherine tries to get her aunt to reveal Sebastian's true nature, vaguely hinting that he was gay. In a last-ditch effort to help Catherine, Kirkwoods brings her to the Venable estate, where he administers a drug, 
that will allow her to overcome any resistance to remembering what happened that summer. She recalls how she and Sebastian spent their days on the beach in the Spanish town of Cabeza de Lobo. Catherine reveals that Sebastian was using her to attract young men in order for him to seduce them. Because the boys are so desperate for money, Sebastian was successful in his efforts. However, he began to make plans to depart for Northern Europe. One scorching white hot day, Sebastian and Catherine were beset by a team of boys begging for money. When Sebastian rejected them, they pursued him through the streets of the town. Sebastian attempted to flee, but the boys swarmed around him in every turn. He finally was cornered among the ruins of a temple on a hilltop. In the meantime, Catherine had been frantically trying to catch up with Sebastian, but she reached him only to see him overwhelmed by the boys. To her horror and revulsion, they tore him apart and ate pieces of his flesh. Oh my God! <laughs> what a, what an ending! Let's let's start to the beginning of this paragraph, shall we? I, this is we already went through my full page. Now I just have my half page left. There was just so much going on in this end part that I couldn't even write as many notes because I was just so invested in the story. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like I like especially the last half hour of this something else let me tell oh, you yeah it, it's unlike anything I've ever seen this is where we hit the <laughs> climax and everything just starts connecting and making sense right but I guess like rewinding a tad yeah we we see that Catherine's family isn't this I don't know maybe this innocent party themselves oh my no no they're well, grubbing for money <laughs> One thing that I will make note of, this is the Jack part of me coming out in this episode. <laughs> so Mrs. Venable says that she will donate $1 million. So in 1937 time, that's a million dollars. But in today's standard, it is $18,958,541.67. Wow. That's incredible. $18 million today. Lots of money. Pocket change for her. Yeah, indeed. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's her justice, I guess. She wants to pay for her, in her mind, justice. Um, that's really crazy. And I think that's a really great display of just how much is on the line for this guy. Not that a million dollars is chump change by any means, like at all, right. but but when we look at it that way, that's a lot of money. And the fact that she's willing to just hand over that amount of money just so that her niece can get this lobotomy done and her son's LGBTQ-ness plus Q-ness. <laughs> yes, his, his, uh, his, his true sexual orientation. Yes, will stay hidden. That's the length that she will go for this. I think what's like kind of engrossing on top of it is that, yes, you bring up his um, LGBTQ identity and that, yes, there's a factor in hiding that. But mm -hmm. I think there's also this weird, the ancestral part coming out where mm -hmm. it's like she doesn't want him, like, I think even in her own mind to be seen with anybody else. 
but hurt. In denial. And I'm not saying that a sexual relationship, but that sort of Oedipus complex coming out for her, mm-hmm. I think she's mm-hmm. trying to keep that alive also for herself, just as much as she's trying to keep it a secret from the world that his, his true nature. Because that's the only thing that's going to keep her sane. Yes. Having lost him. Yes. And and we'll see how that turns out for her later. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the truth is revealed. They're planning on giving Catherine a lobotomy and that's devastating. Oh, also, I think it's interesting that they pronounce Cabeza de Lobo with the Spanish accent, like Cabeza de Lobo. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Just, just a, very just interesting. A, just, that is a fun continuity note for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it also, I feel like depends on who says it. Yes, I agree. So, and she and Catherine spent time there. So she's probably used to the local uh-huh. dialect and, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to hark too much on the thirties to fifties clothing, but um, yeah, there it's, it's interesting what was woven into and what wasn't truth is revealed. Catherine, tries to run away after that. What are your thoughts on the scene of all the men looking at her, making noises and reacting to her, laughing at her in the room? Terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I know if I was in that situation, I would probably react the same way, especially after everything going through her mind at the time. Her mother and brother are pretty much selling her out just so they can receive money that was from Sebastian's will, which I might add again, they were supposed to receive $50,000 each, which equates to $947,927 today. So Mm. almost a million dollars. I see. I see. The plot thickens. We have money at stake, Mm -hmm. vengeance at stake. There's a lot (laughs) going on here. It's quite the pressure cooker. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think that this is like, you see more of the animalistic nature of Mm -hmm. human beings come out. We talk about it in the beasts, like with the birds and the turtles and the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And and here we're seeing a little bit of, uh, I don't, I don't know if ugliness is the right word, but that scariness in in people Mm -hmm. and ruthlessness. Yeah. And at the same time, I think it's interesting because we're also trying to call attention to mental health and the depiction of mental health Mm -hmm. at that time. And I know that Tennessee Williams was unhappy with this one as well as Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and how it was adapted. Mm -hmm. And this, I, I don't know if this was his exact critique, but this would be my critique that I think that you're now kind of depicting people with mental health disorders in this unflattering light, which is not really oh, yeah. his goal, Tennessee Williams's goal at all. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I would say that my thoughts with his critique sit with scenes like this and the one with the women later. Mm-hmm. But we get more insight into Sebastian really with this, with some more lines. Like what did you, what to me, one of the standouts was like blondes were next on the menu. Again, we're getting back to that whole eating thing and people Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) I put my note, like, Ooh, if I could do that, I emoji. (laughs) 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 My Um, thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. What are you thinking? Honestly, 
this is where we start to see her coming out of this fog, how she said her life began and ended that night. I think it ended because that's kind of when everything that she thought happened, people were telling her was an illusion. Right. So were they gaslighting her? I believe so. So I don't think that even though maybe she remembered some of these things that she was even maybe believing herself at the time. Mm-hmm. And so this is just her mumblings of little things that she remembers that will somehow get us to the end at some point. That is a great takeaway. I can totally see that. I think that we get this almost like a feminist look too from a modern mm-hmm. eye also. Um, and at this point, do you have any guesses like, like, like take yourself back to this point in time. You're watching it for the first time. Do you okay. have any guesses as to how Sebastian died? I, I think at the time I was assuming he got shot and maybe his mother didn't want anyone to know that maybe someone had a vengeance out for him. Right. So that was kind of my assumption at the point, that point in time but I definitely didn't think where it was actually going to go. No. And I, I take myself back to when I, you know, read the source material for the first time and I just wanted to know so bad. I just kept picturing maybe that he would take his own life kind of like, kind of like what was depicted in a cat on a hot tin roof. Mm -hmm. And, but that was like my initial thoughts. Um, And then I, and then it like, once I got to know Sebastian more, I was like, no, mm-hmm. I think he's really narcissistic. I don't think that oh, yeah. that's going to happen. And then I pictured him falling off a cliff, but I didn't know if like <laughs> Catherine pushed him or what, but maybe one of his lovers from that summer. Yeah. And man, that's who, that's who I thought maybe could have shot him yeah. because in my head, I'm thinking, oh, the mom wants to preserve this good boy reputation memory of him and wants to think of him as like pure. And we even get into that later. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, Hey, why not? Let's just head there now. Uh, He's uh, uh, Violet has asked what kind of a personal life he led uh, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, which is, I don't know, a pretty sly kind of, borderline production code wording of uh, (laughs) sex life. And she answers, he was chased in a very uptight, serious, stern tone. And the thing you'll notice about Violet a lot throughout the film is just that even if she's going through one monologue, her Mm. face and her expressions and her whole composure changes so many times based on what she's talking about. Right. Her monologues also just kind of jump from one place to another. Yeah. I loved her portrayal. I really did. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, um, it wasn't exactly like what my mind was picturing from the book, but that being said, or the book, the play that being Mm -hmm. said, uh, I adore it. I think it was great interpretations. And yeah, yeah. this exchange with her, I feel like is kind of one of the most overt references to sexuality in a Tennessee Williams adaptation. I feel like this is, you know what? It kind of reminds me of like when we talked about the Bond films, 
about mm-hmm. how by your third one, you're taking the most risks. <laughs> and I feel like here we are kind of with a third Tennessee Williams adaptation, but the third that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and here we are kind of with the most pushing the edge sort of content. Well, I will say you just referenced the production code and kind of sneaking around some terminology when she mentioned that he was chased correct me if I'm wrong but the doctor said so he was abstinent yes yes and we have the term abstinent as well and so they just threw that word right out there yes so and that's you know pretty clear cut relating to sexual activity so Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this is like probably the most shock and awe in, ter- yeah. in, in terms of that element. Love that. And <laughs> I definitely feel like there's a huge sense of jealousy that Sebastian picked Catherine. And mm-hmm. do you think that Catherine shared the sort of incestuous mindset that Violet had towards Sebastian? Honestly, I did not pick up on that just because once they do go to the Venable estate, once she starts telling her story, I can definitely assume that she did not have the same type of relationship with Sebastian Mm -hmm. because how she mentioned how often she was left alone. And I think she was just kind of enjoying her summer. And whenever Sebastian needed her, she was there. She was a good cousin, but she would do anything for him. He's family. But at the same time, it wasn't the same. <laughs> that's that's a yeah, I, I see that take. Um, I think that Sebastian feeds on people being in love with him. I think mm-hmm. he's, you know, I think he's one of those guys. I mm-hmm. think he feeds off of like I don't that say, energy. Yeah, like toying with people, and I don't think he he you know is attracted to women, let alone his mother. But I think <laughs> that he gets a kick out of women being interested Mm -hmm. in him in that sexual way, even if they're related to him, which is a really sickening thing to say. (laughs) No, it is. It's gross. (laughs) Anyway, um, And so I could see him being disappointed that he didn't get that same energy back from Mm -hmm. Catherine. Mm -hmm. That like, I love him, but he wants the in love. And maybe that's why this summer was unlike any previous one. I think you're right. I think you're right, dear Brooke. <laughs> I, um, but what kills me is when she says the line, Sebastian only needed you while you were still useful. I was like, ooh. And then Dr. Kirkwood's pulling through, asking all of our questions for us, like, useful for what? And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we learned that she was based, Catherine and, uh, Catherine and Violet were basically bait. Right. Wowzers. I wrote in my notes in all caps, truth bomb. <laughs> truth bomb, indeed. Uh, it really was. That was the explosion. That's uh, kind of a climax in and of itself. And then it just result like this was a perfectly built, like I love that scene in particular because the tension and conflict and the war within the characters was perfectly built because mm-hmm. it landed on Violet pretty much thinking she won the battle. And she's like, I want that girl operated on. And mm-hmm. You know what that made me think of? Tell me. The current issue of, okay, not that it's the same thing at all, but the current, <laughs> the current issue of conservatorship over Catherine. Yes. And 
really choosing things in her own self-interest. And then I think about now we have this public story of Britney Spears and free Britney. Yes. The conservative ship <laughs> over her and people making decisions over her yes. and beyond that political spheres of decision-making. If you catch my mm-hmm. drift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really feel like this to me, uh, hit different. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And maybe think you. About, yes. Yes. Made me think about current events. So I don't know if you thought the same thing, but I definitely saw that. <laughs> I definitely didn't think of it at the time, but there was definitely something in my head saying, this seems so familiar, but yes. what is it? Oh my goodness. That makes so much more sense now. <laughs> I that's That's what came to mind. And here we go. We're transitioning into the third act of sorts. Mm-hmm. We finally open up the mystery box and I just, I love the build up into it. It's like game day, like Kirk yeah. is getting uh, Catherine ready. I love the shot of the elevator going down and we see <laughs> Violet looking out of the secretary and family. It's, it's like a sporting event. <laughs> And tell me, tell me if you got this too, whenever she's ascending out of the elevator, Mm -hmm. she has her speech prepared. And when that time she was coming down, she was talking to the doctor and she stops immediately when she realizes he's not there. Yes. uh, She's a, yeah, a little performative. She's got Mm -hmm. a face, a mask that she puts on. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if there's something more troubling going on inside of her. Uh That is a good call. And here we go. One, one more inappropriate doctor patient of the whole holds me. I've been so lonely. Love it. Oh my God. And then the director walks in and he doesn't say anything about it. No, that is, uh, speaks to the time, I suppose. And I mean, it's like, it's massively confusing and just so unnecessary, but such a like peppery little add on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It really does up the ante in terms of drama. I'll tell you that. <laughs> this like entirely unnecessary kiss. I like that they put it in, but at the same time, if you think about the fact that he gave her some shot beforehand, <gasps> so she's, she's sedated on something. Oh, Brooke, what a good pickup in consent. <laughs> I, I guess I didn't really think about the drug because I didn't really know. I, I kind of thought of like a truth serum. So I didn't uh-huh. really know. Because but like, they, they do call it, she says, is this some sort of truth serum? And he said, mm-hmm. pretty much if that were to exist. But then we mm-hmm. think about the first time they kissed as well. And at that point, I don't know if she was on any medication, mm-hmm. but she was kind of riding an emotional roller coaster and some sort of high that just made her feel all these emotions. And she right. just went for it. So both of these kisses happen under very interesting circumstances. Absolutely. Interesting circumstances, to say the least. Uh, (laughs) So I feel like right now with that kiss, it's like sealed to an all time high. And Mm -hmm. we finally get the recount, the entire story that happened so suddenly last summer. Mm -hmm. Um. Let's just start spinning it out. All of the thoughts. All right. I, 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 okay. First of all, I have to say that bathing suit in the scene, the white bathing suit, I think it's mm-hmm. iconic. I love that costume. That's on the, <laughs> what's it called? 
the poster. Yes. Yeah. The poster that's on the poster. Yes. The, the, the scenes of her procuring him, she's mm-hmm. luring him to attract the victim lovers. Oh my God. Okay. What, just, what are your thoughts throughout this whole ending? <sighs> well, you already started it. So we'll just start <laughs> from there. Um, very interesting. We're finally starting to understand, and mind you, this goes into a bit of a flashback. So we can see part of Sebastian, just not his face. Yes. So we're finally being able to see this story rather than just watching her tell it. Mm -hmm. And it's all starting to connect with the little hints that she gave before when she was speaking with her aunt at the hospital or Yeah, the state hospital. So we finally understand how she was just a pawn in his chess game. And whenever he didn't need her, she was just off doing her own thing, writing in her journal. I'm not sure what you thought about the black bathing suit when she was finally able to wear something a little more covered up. Yes. And then what's next? They're just at lunch. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the lunch. Yeah. I think the black bathing suit could totally be more symbolism. Maybe I, I go I, again, kind of back to that Alfred Hitchcocky thing mm-hmm. in Psycho, which, you know, is filmed <laughs> later. Uh, if you start with the kind of the purity and innocence and then it turns yeah. into this like dirty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like and black. then we we get into the more gritty part of the story that she couldn't remember. So mm-hmm. once they're at lunch, this is when the whole story really begins to unfold it sure does and what a story it is the lunch <laughs> the, the the build up the i think this is actually just really terrific writing mm-hmm. uh, it kept me on the edge of my seat and this is something a, a really good display of like you can't accomplish everything in a in a book, you can't accomplish everything in a short story. You can't accomplish everything in a play and different formats of different works of arts give you variety in what you can show. And I, I like that they showed the flashbacks side by side with Mm -hmm. her telling the story. I like that um, they showed both because I felt like you preserved the original intention of like the character and the acting and Mm -hmm. her, her descent into the truth. Um, Mm -hmm. and the liberation. And at the same time, I think you get really cool, just artistic visuals of Spain. Oh, for sure. Uh Uh-huh. You get the best of both worlds there, which is really awesome. And I love the speed at which she talks. It it made me anxious with her or like kept me me on the roller coaster. I like the the pictures. It all makes you feel anxious. Fun fact, Eddie Fisher, her husband was, I think, an Mm -hmm. extra. He was one of the boys on the fence. Yes, one of the boys on the fence. And, well, another side note, um, her husband had passed away previously while she was filming Cat on a Hot Roof. And so, uh, to my knowledge, she pulled a lot of those memories while uh, going into her her acting performance in this one, her Mm -hmm. grief and sadness Mm -hmm. of the loss. So, uh, just another little uh, not-so-fun fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe going off that not so fun fact that (laughs) somewhere it said that the first take was the best because that's when she had all of her emotions and they didn't know if they should shoot it again. Mm, Right. You are. Cause that got her really just crying. Yeah. That raw grittiness 
mm-hmm. where real life meets art. It's, it's mm-hmm. really something else. And you know, what's crazy what? about this, like final scene, the irony of Sebastian really coming to life in the part of the story that leads up <laughs> to his death, Exactly. Uh, his views towards poverty, his mm-hmm. treatment of throwing the money at the problem. I bet this is just loaded with social commentary on. I mean, where else did he get it from other than his mom? Yes. Yes. I, I, right. Yeah. So I see, I see classism. I see structures of power and abuse. It's just all imploding and exploding right mm-hmm. in this story, both symbolically and literally. <laughs> and it all ends with his victims, the people that fell into this trap. Mm-hmm eating him like oh my god what were you like like were you in shock when that was the big reveal I I was in shock but at the same time I think I was a little more in shock at Elizabeth Taylor screaming help yeah because all of a sudden it was just (laughs) (laughs) I I remember the first time I watched I had to like turn the volume way down. Oh yeah. At yeah. first I at first my jaw was just dropped and then I was like completely just flustered. Right. It's it's a very flustering scene. Um we see Sebastian essentially like meeting his demise through mm-hmm. the way he treats other people in the end. His greed. Yes. He's got the best of him. And I think that that can translate to the mental health care system and their uses of lobotomy at the time. I think mm-hmm. that that can yeah, relate to a number of things that Tennessee Williams was probably getting at. But what a shock. Mm-hmm. Just, just what a shock. And then we kind of end to the real conclusion here that while Catherine finds liberation by speaking the truth, Violet Venable falls into mental derangement. So what irony that now Violet is quote unquote, the crazy one. Yeah. (laughs) And she is now in that state that she completely disillusioned at this point. Exactly. And she has now been like kind of consumed in that. Mm -hmm. And now with the truth, Catherine is free. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's kind of the, the, this, I don't want, I don't know if this is like exactly right, but to me, there's this poetic sense of him freeing his sister, Tennessee Williams, Mm -hmm. freeing his sister through arts, like in this alternative universe of like being able to save this girl with being able to tell the truth. Right. Yeah. One thing I will say is in her state, Mrs. Venable's state of disillusion is that she is talking to the doctor as if he is Sebastian at this point. Yes. That is a a great pickup. At first, at first you're listening to her speak to him and it takes you a second to realize she's not 
talking to the doctor. She's talking to her son. You are absolutely right. She is, it's truly all she can see is Sebastian Mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, That Mm -hmm. is her, her one vision. He is like that son to her, like Mm -hmm. son is in relation, son is in like the star. (laughs) Um, And yeah, Dr. Kirkwitz, I feel like is now, now I think there's a sense of freedom for him too. Also, I feel like it's almost a sense of freedom for Mrs. Venable in a weird way, Mm. just because she was so hung up on covering her son's truth, covering her niece's truth, and it was making her ill. Because I don't know if we mentioned, I don't know if we referenced earlier that her medical condition was that she had a stroke. Yes. But I feel like now that she thinks that she's back with Sebastian, it almost eases her mind as well. She doesn't have as many worries going on. You're true. You're true. You're right. (laughs) I think that this reveals how sick she really is. And Mm -hmm. you're right. And that's a really cool take that it did free her to not put up that front that she was putting on Mm -hmm. all the time, like we mentioned. So that's there too. And you know, what's cool is I just, I, I, I think that it's nice just seeing Montgomery Clift in this role, accomplishing all of this, like his character accomplishing all this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of to see, to know that he went through such a hardship in real life mm-hmm. and then to see him here to find this relief or his character to find this relief mm-hmm. in the scene. I think that that has some peace to it too. So oh, for sure. All really cool. And I love the shot of her going in that elevator, going up, <laughs> kind of like how Sebastian going up and up the hill to the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, lots of parallels. And just for what, sure. What a fantastic ending. This is a movie unlike any other. What are your kind of wrapping up thoughts on this? My wrapping up thoughts is just that they really tied up all the loose ends. Mm. Like I said in the beginning, going into this, I had no clue what I was getting into. (laughs) And granted, it is a longer film, but they do really end in such a way where you have no questions whatsoever anymore. It's kind of up to your interpretation what happens after this. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of nice. And I I think I I always like feeling satisfied at the end of the movie or the play or whatever. And even if Mm -hmm. it's a sad ending and I felt very satisfied this, I got the answer to my, I got the answer to my question. (laughs) I, I, you get to see, um, a character find justice who was wronged Mm -hmm. and you kind of see a sense of restoration for everyone really. So I, I just, yeah, I, I enjoyed this. It was one of those where it wasn't, it, it's an acquired taste, not to bring up more like food and eating <laughs> terminology, but I think this movie might take a time or two to kind of appreciate, but I really actually mm-hmm. think that you can get there. And even if you're just not into all the heavy dialogue in the beginning, Mm -hmm. I think it is so worth it for that last 30 minutes. Stick it out for sure. 
So I think this is definitely one worth watching. It definitely would be a, a unique one to check out for your Labor Day weekend. <laughs> and I just love seeing Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor on screen together. They're just quite a pair and another iconic duo. <laughs> exactly. Iconic duo. Wow. Brooke. I cannot thank you enough for being my co-pilot for this episode. You, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. This is a dream come true. No, it's so exciting. I just, I love hearing your responses to the episodes and stuff. So it's, it's so fun to have you finally on an episode and giving your thoughts kind of in real time versus just talking <laughs> after about the movies. Right. So I loved having you. I can't wait to explore more films with you. Uh, hopefully we'll get you on some more episodes with my little sister and (laughs) more Gen Z friends to get their thoughts into the world of the golden age of Hollywood. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again. And thank you, Old Soul family. Uh, Please bear with us as we're trying to kind of figure out formatting and what things will look like going forward. Um, But I promise you, we have some really fun episodes planned. So stay tuned. And until next time.